Nation Live next week. We're going to do it. I really want to. People have been complaining that I've been getting that stuck in their head, and I would like to let you know the process in which one goes about making one of those videos. It means you get to listen to it like 90 times or so. Um, so, yeah, it's a part of me now. It's not just stuck in my head. So, um, If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter uh, generally today, but our specific passage that we're going to be looking at is chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And so as you flip there, uh, we're going to actually start reading uh, a good portion of this. I want to um, give us some context. So there's, there's many themes developing over these chapters, and so I think it would be helpful for us as we have to parachute into some of these past sermons uh, to gain some context by just reading the scriptures some together. So starting in chapter 3, I'd like to begin in verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Show love, for since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are indeed our Father. And Father, as we begin to bring this family series to a close and begin to continue to turn our eyes outward from ourselves, we pray that our eyes would first rest squarely on your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, the love that we find from him, the hope that we find in him, will be what we rest upon. And Father, that will be our motivation to go, our motivation to turn out from ourselves to others within and without. And Father, as we look at your text today, we pray that you would illuminate it in our hearts. And Father, that we would seek to understand that which is spiritual, those things that only you can help us see rightly. And Father, I pray for myself as I bring the word, and that, Father, I would be obedient in the words you have for me. And Father, to share the very hope that I have. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you probably won't know this name, Ralph Winter. Ralph Winter is a very much a missions guru, if you will. Uh, wrote a very large book that almost every undergraduate has to read uh, for their missions class. Um, fantastic missionary, understands contextualization, understands the cultures of the world. Uh, and he had this to say in regards to the world and the church. He said, we may do well to recognize what seems to be the consistent thrust of the whole Bible. That unless and until in faith, the future of the world becomes more important than the future of the church, then the church has no future. As Jesus put it, the most dangerous thing you can do is seek to save your own life. It sounds a little confusing at first glance. You read it and you say, well, the church is the most important thing. And we need to remember that the church exists in large part and really the main thrust for the world. And, and when we think for the world, what we're thinking is this. If you kind of turn the phrase around backwards, world evangelization is the only future of the church. It's the only future of the church. Every church in history 
that has not reached out has gone down. You couple this fact with the logical statement of Jesus that to whom much is given, of him much shall be required, and world evangelization is no longer an option. It's not something that just the, the spiritually super gifted or super zealous or whatever you want to kind of categorize those people who are always somehow not ourselves. It's not just a way for them to gain extra brownie points with God. It is a mission for the church. It is a mission for Christians. Again, the words of Jesus, if you save your life, you will lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, then you will find it in Mark 8.35. It has an application to the church, certainly universal, but even to denominations, to local churches, and to individuals. Because we have it on the authority of Christ that the church universal will endure. There's no concern about whether the church will survive. The church will reach the nations. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will always cause his true people around the globe to actually give up their lives for the gospel mission. But we have no biblical guarantee that any given denomination or local church or even individual will endure to the end. See, denominations have come and gone. That's a very interesting footnote of church history that we rarely talk about. We talk about them when they're here, but not when they go. Churches have risen up and then disappeared, sometimes overnight. And many individuals then, like seeds sown among thorns, have confessed faith in Christ, but then have been choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, as we see Jesus say in Luke 8. And so the future of our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Renovation Church, our local body, and even you and me hangs on whether we lose our lives for Christ and for his gospel. The church exists by mission as the fire exists by burning. We talked about at the beginning of this series the struggle that we seem to have, at least from our evaluation of living as family and living as missionaries told you that I, I think we just really, really like each other. <laughs> I hope and I pray, as we talked about several weeks ago, of trying to find some kind of uh, altar, some kind of benchmark of seeing where you're at so that you can measure the progress of the Spirit in you, that some three, four weeks later, you can see love for your brother and sister budding in your heart. That's more than like it's a true understanding of Christian love for one another because I think and I think that Jonah is going to, to repeat the same pattern as Matt and I have been looking forward to that and talking about it we will not we can not look out there until we properly take care of business in here we just can't it won't happen I think that that is our struggle that's why we've gone this path this past month I am seeing in our house gatherings, I am seeing in you guys' relationships, I am hearing from things that you guys have been sharing that love is happening. And that is a grace of God. I see even new friendships and relationships even over the past month begin to bud as a result of God's grace in his people, in his place. 
And so I want to thank God for that. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness in that. And understand that as we begin to take our eyes as a church uh, off of self for the most part, and we've turned it now to the family, we want to begin this process of recognizing the family and going together. And we recognize the world. It's going to be much of the same themes that happened in Jonah. As Jonah looks at himself versus him looking at Nineveh. You're going to see in narrative form this play out as I think it is for us. So, as we look at then our text for today, um, we want to understand to a degree of, all right, I understand the the theming, I understand the, the thought that, that I am a broken person and that I am needy and that people take care of me and I take care of people. And so I'm getting my eyes off of myself. I'm getting my eyes off of just my nuclear family. I see now, maybe for the first time, those around me who are hurting. What do we do together? And so our passage specifically for today, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so the question, as we look at just this text, and I'll explain how, how it fits into our mission picture in just a second, but the question as we look at this text is we first have to ask some very easy questions. What does it mean to be ready to make a case for your hope? Wherein does this readiness consist? How are we to get ready and to stay ready? We have a very clear imperative, always being prepared to make a defense. How do we do that? What does it mean? So the first thing that I want us to see today as we explore this together is to see the good and enjoy each other. See the good and enjoy each other. I'm just going to walk through parts of the passage together. We start at the beginning. First, note the zeal for what is good. If you are zealous for what is good, note that. Peter has been talking about what is good for a while in 1 Peter. Ultimately, he's going to talk about the word good 17 times in the ESV. And most of the early examples in chapters 1 and some in 2 are specifically in reference to the good news, the gospel, right? But then he shifts to a, a general character-like examples. It's, it's the opposite of evil, basically. Good, evil. Pretty easy. I love this about Peter. He's, he's a straight shooter. He just, evil, good. It's the opposite. It's character examples generally. But then as he develops his theme, he kind of lands on this specific acts of character sense. It's not just a general good versus evil, but he brings it home, as Peter is pretty good at doing. And there's specific acts of character. In 1 Peter 2.15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And doing good is going to end up in this book being the summary call to action. Paul's the one who gives lists, right? Lots of lists. Persist in this. Think on these things. If anything is, 
right? What does Peter say? Do good. Do good. So why this encouragement that he's giving us to do good? Well, our context is, again, we're parachuting into First Peter, even though we were here some last week. Understand that the readers of the Apostle Peter's letter were confused, and they were discouraged by the persecution that they were encountering. Why? Because of their faith. So this is a letter of perseverance, right? And we've heard all the good passages. That was a pun. You get it? Good, Peter's goods and good passages. Trying. Good passages, right, on perseverance. In fact, we just read one this morning, and that's typically the one of the ones that we'll turn to when we talk about perseverance for the church in Hebrews, right? We know those passages. We've been encouraged by them. They're certainly helpful. But my concern specifically today is not just how do you persevere, but how do we persevere? How does a family of believers persevere together? That's my concern today. You see, if we recap this series, we've talked about how we relate to each other. We are needy and needed. We are united by being sinners. The gospel has outed us as sinners. There's nothing for us to hide We've seen how we should pursue one another as ambassadors of reconciliation. We recognize that judgment is coming and there is great fear to be had of that judgment if we are not found in Christ. And so having an understanding of that fear of the judgment, we persuade others. We implore them, be reconciled to God. We've seen last week how we should care for one another in covenant hospitality and so the question now is how do we last how do we persevere how do we the family make it to the end together how can we lose our life as Jesus would have us for the sake of the lost the sake of the world quite simply I think it's just we do good that's what Peter would say. Just above our text for today in chapter 3, 9 through 11, it says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And so if we're to do good, then let's see what Peter has to say about it. Just some of the argument here for doing good. We don't have time to fully develop this today, but let's look at a few. In 3.13, it says, For who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Our passage today. Verse 16, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Therefore, 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then the summary in 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You've made it, he says. After a little while, the one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself 
restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You've made it. And so it seems to me that Christians, the church, the family, should be about the business of doing good while suffering. And they will do this good while suffering until the last day. Indeed, the last half of chapter 1, if you were to look back in the beginning of chapter 2, declare the call to be holy. Even, I think last week, as sojourners and exiles, we were called to be holy so that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. So that language from last week, sojourners and strangers, for the glory of God, for his name's sake, right? When? Till when? On the day of visitation. That could mean two things. I could first of all, given the context, be speaking to the lost person who is visited by the Holy Spirit, their salvation. And that's a glorious day indeed, right? But then there's another easy interpretation, the last day. The day that he himself, as we saw in chapter 5, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a glorious day indeed, right? So the church is to continue together. The church is to do good. If we want to make it to the end as a family, if we want to understand what it is to lay our lives down for the sake of the lost, if we want to have a future as a church, and if we were to move from this place to have a future with the church, then we must lay our lives down and persevere together. So, first... The church is to continue together. The church is to continue together. Your main point, see the good, enjoy each other. Sub-point, the church is to continue together. I want us to take the long view. Let's take the long view. What does it look like to journey together? I'm speaking of us in this room and over there us renovation what does it look like to journey together i understand there are people here that that are moving on that are here for a time that are coming even today for the first time i'm not trying to put weight on anyone and, and that immediate sense all right that's not my point my point is for us to see the big picture first of faith but then of what it could look like to walk together as renovation so hear me on that, okay? I, I understand that there, there's movement. That's not my point. Look at the time together, all right? I, I did some math, um, and, and Matt and I have talked about this in recent days even. I'm trying to think of, like, how many hours of sermons, or just sermons in general and, and lessons that I heard from the age of, like, nine, which I'm assuming is when I hopefully started sort of paying attention in church, all right? Uh, I moved away from my goodie bag with activities and snack um, to kind of pay attention. I'm not sure when that happened, and I was too afraid to ask my parents. So 9 to 18, I'm thinking, I've got 1,200 to 15 hours of sermons spoken over me from Sunday morning, Sunday nights, and I tried to add in, like, youth. I tried to factor in not doing that until, like, 16 that's a huge blessing from God. If I factor in just 
Sunday mornings from the time that I was nine until my current age. Um, I feel old after this past week. Um, 1,500 sermons. That's crazy. That is crazy. I think about like hours of discipleship that we've given to some people in this church, and it, it totals up to like 800 hours over seven years. That's intense. You think about the different series that we've been a part of just at Renovation. I didn't count them all up because there's like many ones in there and stuff too. But look at my wall in the office and that's just like since I started doing the artwork, right? We have journeyed through so many different things together. We think about the classes that we've been a part of, that we've gone to, that we've done here. Think about when you go through DNA. Let's say you're at two and a half hours per meeting. I have no idea where that stands on your reality scape. Uh, But two and a half hours per meeting for 18 lessons, you're up to like 45 hours that you combined do together in DNA. That's a lot of life together. That's a lot of God's grace together. You're wondering what this box is. This is my testament of God's grace in my life. Saving me early, I understand that not everyone gets this option. These are sermons. I mean, full of sermons. This is when I had money, Moleskines, right? When I didn't, you have my, some of you remember this one, right? Full of God's sermons. Uh, It's just, this is God's testament to longevity in my life. This is school, look at these, these are terrible. This is from when I was in, in high school and middle school, right? You can flip through a few of these. They're interesting. We have spiritual disciplines, memories again. When you see as God sees, you will do as God says. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Romans twelve two. I mean, these are God's grace in my life. It is huge. And it's had a serious impact in forming who I am. Now, I can't remember four specific sermons, maybe. That's not the point. That's not the point. You see, for me, it's really difficult sometimes sitting in house gatherings, specifically after I preach because I'm, you know, prideful, and I sit there and I ask the question, right? You guys have seen this question. What stood out the most to you this week, right? Seriously, I almost bought foil gold stars this past week. You know those Avery ones that you get like in gold, red, green, blue, and silver, right? And, and you're just going to pass them out and you can stick them out. I've got, you guys are sitting here in house gathering with pages full of notes and you're like, I don't know what stood out. Just close your eyes and pick a psalm, right? I mean, that, that's what we want. That's what we would hope. And, and largely when we craft a sermon, we have like one main idea. But that's not the point. The point is not to remember those things. Sure, I can go back and I can see specifically what God taught me, but it's teaching me how to think. It's teaching me how to read Scripture. It's teaching me how to view life, and I did that by walking with God for time. And that's how He works. It's increasingly difficult at renovation for us to allude back to previous series. One of the ones that we love to the most is gospel and kingdom. It's so foundational for the way that we interpret scripture and the way that we preach. 
And we're just getting farther away from that. You guys are new, and that's awesome. And I'm glad to have you, and we're going to do it again. I have all of Piper's sermons. I have all of John MacArthur's sermons in Logos, which is like a godsend to me. But I look up a passage, or I look up a topic, and I can see 30 years of preaching for these guys. And I can see how many times they've hit the same passage, and there's like six years in between each one. Or I look at the, the topics, and I see that sometimes there's 15 years between a topic being preached. What does it look like to be with a people? Guys, we can't teach you everything you need to know or everything we want to teach you in four years. If you're at college, there's more to the game. We are marching together towards maturity, mature believers, and that takes time. And things change. People change. Structures change. We're getting ready to go that route with our house gatherings this year. We have some relatively major changes in the way that they work, not in what they are necessarily, but in the way that they work. I want to share some of those with you now. We want to, to take time together to spend more time exploring Scripture ourselves, right? We want to help you guys utilize your giftings better. Now, our job, as we saw from Ephesians, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? And in large part, you guys are doing that. That's not our problem. Right? We, we did learners and all that. That was great. But one way that we think that we can help you better serve each other and to grow better together is through some of these changes in DNA. So what we're going to be doing, just to kind of give you some bullets, and we'll, we'll be talking about this some more as we go along, we're going to change the leadership structure. Right now we have our house gathering leaders who are expected to do actually quite a bit when you kind of look at it. It's a good amount that they can pretty easily do, but it's still a, a large scope of responsibility. They're really our first touch point besides DNA that, that Matt and I have with you guys. And in <laughs> the current case, we are still that person. Um, we're your house gathering leader. So what we want to do is, is empower you guys even more than, than what you already have in DNA and help move that into the house gathering model. So we're going to have three positions in each house gathering that we would like to see Filled. The first two will need to be filled by men, and the last one can be filled by a man or a woman. The first one is not going to be too unfamiliar from what you're currently used to. This person will be concerned about the word, right? They're going to be bringing the word together. And we'll talk about what that looks like uh, later. There's some changes going on in that too. But that person is going to be responsible for the word, the minister of the word in the group, and that's largely why it needs to be a male. The second position uh, is one that hopefully your house gathering leader does or at least encourages others to do alongside them, and that is really our care person, someone who is going to be administering and leading out in care for the group. Now, that's not someone who does all the care. It is someone who helps coordinate the care. As you guys have a need in your group, that person is going to help coordinate efforts and, and, and details to help take care of the people that are in your Group. And that's something that the house gathering leaders should do um, now. Hopefully they are doing that well. Uh, but this, I think, is something that they can help uh, that will take the stress off of that person and allow you guys who are much more caring than some of us uh, to care better for each other. And then finally, our last position that we're going to be talking about is the one who's concerned about uh, two things, really. Uh, just administration, <laughs> 
just as some of you know from my house gatherings, a, a thing I'm not good at. Um, and two, uh, the mission. And that is something that can be done by a male or a woman. And we want to, you guys to use your giftings to serve each other, as we've seen even in First Peter last week, as we saw in Romans 12. First, spiritual gifts. Next, do these things. And so our house gatherings ideally will shift to this three-person team where they are able to help coordinate, care for each other, and allow you guys to better serve one another. And so now we can't have the excuse of, well, I don't know what I can do because you have three people that can help you. It's just in your immediate setting. And we can be about the business weekly, and we can take care of each other weekly. I'm excited to share more on that, but we have to continue on. And we want to think about the long view. If you walk together with people in your house gathering now, in your DNA time together, nine months is a long time. It takes nine months to, to make a person. That's a good chunk of your life, nine months. It's still not 15 years. It's still not 30 years. But it's still a significant season of life together. You see, God takes the long view. It took him 400 years to rescue Israel from Egypt. Not from a lack of power, but that's what he designed, as we saw in Genesis 15. But 40 years in the desert, a generation gone. 70 years in exile, another generation or two gone. 400 years intertestamentally from Malachi to Matthew generations waiting for messiah in the quiet no revelation no speaking from god paul takes the long view even though his own change was sudden he was breathing murder against the christians and on one road trip his life changed completely and what does he expect of his people look at first corinthians growth over time so, number one, quite simply, I'd like to encourage you to make this your family, as much your forever family as possible. Take it seriously before you leave from this place, and take seriously the invest, investing that, that you put in this place. Beware of just everything else. Money, beware of career, beware of worldly intrigue and success. Our families can get wrapped up in that. We can get wrapped up in that stuff. But we were ransomed from our feudal ways, chapter 1, verse 18. We were ransomed from feudal ways, from money, from career, from worldly intrigue and success. Not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. So make the people of God and the things of God your pursuit. Make it a, a seamless transition into eternity because what happens the day that you die and these other things that we're pursuing will no longer pursue and they don't matter and we will pursue only the things of God with the people of God and God's presence and so we want to see a seamless transition as much as possible into eternity and so as we saw at, at the end of chapter 1 we are called by one who is holy, and so we also should be holy in our conduct, which brings us back to good. The church is to do good. The church is to do good. We saw we should be holy in all of our conduct. This is the basis for all the good 
language in First Peter is the fact that God is holy and he has called us to be holy like him. And I don't want to focus all our time on what is good for us to do. Paul has done a fantastic job of that and we saw that throughout the last half of Ephesians, right? We know. We know what good is, what, what, what it looks like to do good. I want to focus on what good has to do with family. Again, we're looking at the family. And so we need to see the good in each other. And we need to enjoy one another. It comes from Side by Side from Ed Welch. Ed Welch says this, The goal here is to keep our eyes open for good things in others. When we see good things, we savor them and point them out. And as you get to know people, you will encounter many hard things, some unattractive things. But if you also see good, you will see people more as God does. And that is a blessing. The point of seeing good in each other is for us to see people as God sees people. And so how can we see as God sees? I mean, remember that all humans are image bearers, right? All humans are image bearers. And because all humans are image bearers, we can see as God sees. That's why he relates to us differently. We also know that everything good is a reflection of the God who is good. If there is anything good at all, it is from God. Even when we encounter someone who's selfish or, or out for their own good, just, just keep heading towards the heart. Head for the heart. We talk about that in counseling all the time. Head towards the heart. It is the repository of our emotional life. And good comes from its springs. So keep looking until you see the good and you will see it. So what are some practical ways that we can do this? How can we see good in each other? Number one, notice character qualities. Notice character qualities. Be eager to discover patience, self-control, humility, kindness, kindness, selfless acts, encouraging words, attentiveness, courtesy, which is just a form of respect, interest in justice and the marginalized, hard work and love, these fruits of the Spirit. Be eager to discover those in people. You see, these refractions, as it were, of, of light coming through a person and good being displayed of divine goodness are best identified, praised, and enjoyed. Because it is good, it is from God. See, if their appearance in some people is episodic and brief, and even if they are contaminated sometimes with selfishness or with pride, don't let the unattractive features of someone's life blind you to the good. That will land you squarely in the seat of cynicism. And it is a hard seat to get out of. See the good in people. An example that Ed Welch gives of someone who's, who struggles is this. He, she, he says, her house is a, is a mess and her friends assume that she's always going to be late. And many find her frustrating and unreliable. But those who know her see more. When help is needed, she's there and usually on time. And when you speak with her, she is all there. She hears you. She anticipates where you're going. She's moved by what you say, and she's going to pray for you more than five other friends will. That's what it looks like to see the good in someone who, at first glance, you're not going to give any time to. Love is able to see past the clutter of a disorganized life. Like is not able to. If we just like each other, this won't happen. But as you develop love for each other, you will see past 
what's going on to their heart, and you can identify good. Number two, notice gifts and talents. Everyone has strengths, and these strengths are good. They can be used selfishly, of course, but they are also gifts from God that are expressed in the way that we serve one another. You can probably identify your friend's gifts rather quickly. I think about some categories. Like, how many categories of strengths do you think of as you just look around this room? Have you taken the time to do that? I mean, think about categories like this. Uh, strengths in organization, administration, music, teaching, parenting, math, reading, mechanics, aesthetics and decorating, planning, computer technology, electronics, construction, empathy, athletics. There's strengths all over the spectrum, and we have to take time to notice them. And the church is an ideal venue to see the talents and gifts of others because most gifts emerge in the context of serving people. One of the challenges of doing the spiritual gifts class, which is one of my favorite classes that we do, is that some people don't know what their gifts are because they've not spent time serving. And so there's not ground for these seeds to develop in. But as people are serving, even if it's just in some of the most basic ways, you start to see strengths coming through. Number three, notice pleasures and preferences, even hobbies. Whereas character qualities and even innate gifts can go unnoticed by those who possess them, pleasures and preferences are what others consciously enjoy, right? Listen for what excites people. When we hear people talk enthusiastically about almost anything remotely good, we are brought into their pleasures, and we can find ourselves even enjoying them too. Ask things like why it's important to them. Do they have special meaning? Some people are devoted to a specific soft drink simply because that's what their family always did. It reminds them of dad. It reminds them of grandpa. Why are people so obsessed about baseball or football? Because it reminds them of listening to the games on the radio with their grandpa on the back porch. There are deep reasons people do things. And we can explore those together. So notice these things. Ask questions. Number four, notice spiritual vitality. As enjoyable as all these things are, more direct expressions of faith in Jesus Christ are even more so. Pleasures, preferences, hobbies, gifts, talents, character qualities, all these things are, are good, as it were. But I think the most enjoyable things are those direct expressions of faith in Jesus Christ. A friend asks you to pray for her. A person tells a story about turning to Jesus in the midst of great weakness. Someone confides in you about a struggle with anger and asks for help. A spouse says, I was so encouraged by Scripture this morning. Could I tell you about what I read? Or immediately after church, a friend greets you and mentions specific ways that she was challenged and encouraged by the morning's sermon. And she asks for your thoughts as a way she can learn even more. That means you have to start something, okay, um, before Tuesday or Wednesday. See, all of us can see the good in our friends. Scripture, however, authorizes us to see the good and enjoy it in all people, even when most of us are not always so good. This is going to encourage others. It's going to increase our affections for them, and it's going to make it much easier to talk about things that are hard. This is why DNA is difficult, because we're not doing these steps before it. And then all of a sudden we're supposed to talk about things that are hard 
and we can't do it. Notice the good in people before we start going after the bad in people. Notice the grace of God and moving people along before we start destroying all of the bad. Otherwise, we won't hear the hard things. You see, seeing the good helps us love well. Love naturally moves to what is important in someone's story, and it follows up. One of the challenges I've been giving the house gatherings I'm a part in or a part of is, do you guys remember what's going on? <laughs> Not just writing on prayer requests, but the, the struggles that people share from week to week. Yeah. Do you touch up touch on those things later? Do you do you follow up with those? Do you do you care for them in that way? Or are you just waiting for your opportunity to speak? I know it's a struggle. I know it's hard to, to gather enough courage to share burdens, but we have to listen and to be present with each other. See, when we care about someone, we are alerted by what is most troubling, most exciting, most anticipated, and most desired. And some of the story language that you've heard from us, what is their salvation, as it were? What is most exciting to them? We listen even more carefully when strong emotions such as anger, fear, shame, sadness, and grief are evident. And we're drawn in by that and we want to do something. Loving well helps us for the next step, suffering and sin. But now notice how relationships naturally progress from there, from these, these stories that people share, these, these things that they are, these things that they like, these questions that you ask, these things that drive them as you discover their story. Things progress from there. And when you follow what is important to someone, that path is going to take you to the primary struggles of life every time, suffering and sin. See, suffering is the trouble that comes at us, and sin is the trouble that comes out of us. And so this gets us really to the heart of the question earlier. How do we last? How do we persevere? How do we make it to the end together? Some of the together is, and the, the we aspects is answered by what we do. We do good to each other. We recognize it and we enjoy one another. But suffering is here, and suffering seems to stand in the way. When we talk about persevering and getting to the end, it seems as though suffering is standing in our midst and is separating us. We look at our passage again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor. The word for honor there is reverence. In your hearts reverence Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so our second main point today, suffering makes way for hope. Suffering makes way for hope. So let's look at a relationship here. Suffering and hope, right? So one, sub-point, look through suffering. Look through suffering. We understand some of our biblical theology aspects of that from what we read earlier in Hebrews, right? For Jesus looked through the, through the cross, right? For the joy before him, he looked through the cross to the joy that was beyond him. So look through suffering. The problem with suffering is we just don't understand it well. And we all know to go to Job and, and see these interactions from the friends and the wife with Job. 
and Job's interactions with God, and we know to go there, but we still don't understand suffering. And in our attempts to help people, to offer hope, often we can overinterpret suffering. That's what happens in Job. We search for clues to God's ways as if suffering were some kind of like scavenger hunt, right? We get to the end, and we have the right answers, and then God will take away the pain. Now, meanwhile, the quest for answers is always misguided from the start, and it will always end badly. Suffering's not an intellectual matter that needs answers. And that's where we get stuck. Suffering is not an intellectual matter that needs answers. It is highly personal. Can I trust him? Does he hear me? That's the nature of suffering. It's a relational matter. And it is a time to speak honestly to the Lord. And remember that the fullest revelation he gives of himself is through Jesus Christ the suffering servant. Suffering for Jesus wasn't a scavenger hunt. It wasn't a wrap my mind around what I'm suffering for, but what I'm suffering unto. Only when we look to Jesus can we know that God's love and our suffering can coexist. My neighbor passed away this week. She's 53 years old, and she's been struggling uh, with, well, kidney failure really at large. She's been on dialysis almost every day, getting treatments at home for many, many hours, for as long as we've been there, and even longer. She had a transplant, but suffered a total of three heart attacks through her recovery period, and she passed in the last one. And I was moved more this week than I thought I would be. Largely uh, because I'm probably identifying with the husband um, and what it would be like to lose my wife. Uh, so that, that is a, a special connection in my head there. But the other is the fact that we just didn't do enough. We didn't do enough. We talked about hospitality last week, and God, is, as, as he is <laughs> want to do with our sermons, to wreck us in the middle of it. And, and that is the kick in the pants that I think I needed and, and I will be giving to my family. We didn't do enough. I, we, we couldn't save her. They're Catholic, so I don't know where that lands them. Um, I know the things that they've said, and I can make my own judgment, but it's not mine to make. All I know is that we didn't do enough. I've told you guys before that we have active discussions with many of our neighbors, but it typically only happens when it's warm. It's when we're out and we see each other. And by now, we should have been in each other's homes. It would be, it would be easy. But we just didn't push it. We were patient, we took our time, and now it's too late. And so when we think about this idea of suffering, it hit me. Um, he came over to our house and told uh, my mother-in-law, and she texted me and let me know. And I took his coming to us uh, to be an invitation to come speak to him. And so after lunch, I, I went straight home. And as I was racking my brain, everything I wanted to do was come up with some reason or something I could share with him that would make it all better, right? What do I say to this man? A husband I can identify with. Uh, a father I can identify with. Now, what does it look like to lose your wife, the mother of your children? You see, suffering can fit with the plan of God, but how do we communicate that? See, when we get the story right, our suffering confirms that we belong to him. 
It doesn't mean that he's distant and unresponsive. Suffering is a time when he is most obviously at work. It's our spiritual task to turn to him rather than to try to manage our world our own way, and that's what we do in the midst of suffering. See, endurance and suffering doesn't grab our attention, but it's instead a response so important that it will have value that lasts beyond death. And so we look ahead to the time when everything will be made right. Christ will return, sin will be vanquished, death and everything connected to it will be dismissed. We will experience bodily resurrection and live in peace with the triune God and his people. That's the hope that we look towards, right? And that's what suffering puts us in. And we want to be blinded to those things by not being able to see through them to the hope. And since there are so many other ways to tell the story of suffering, we practice the correct one. We read scripture's various retellings and we read the accounts of wise people and we grow in compassion. We need the story so that it can be translated into words. So that we know what to say when we go up there and knock on the door. The better we understand it, the better our help will be and the deeper our compassion for those with hardships will be. And so we need a new hope. Episode 4, A New Hope. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 15, but in your heart's honor, reverence Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for reason for the hope that is in you. And, and, and quoting this here, he is actually quoting, Peter's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. It says this, I think it should be on the screen. Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but reverence the Lord of hosts. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. What God wants here from Isaiah is for the prospect of offending God to be a much more dreadful thing to him than the prospect of, prospect of being persecuted by men. This is the way that Isaiah was to reverence God in his heart. The degree of his reverence for God was the same as his degree of his desire not to displease God. That doesn't sound like a great relationship, right? But why? Why would God be so displeased and offended if Isaiah feared men instead? And the answer is simply that God had made many promises to his people that should have taken away their fear, and it should have filled them with confidence and hope. And so if Isaiah feared man, it would show that he doesn't trust God's promises. And when someone doesn't trust an honest man, he's offended and displeased. You should be on the screen as well from Isaiah. These are the promises. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. For I, the Lord your God, who delivered you from Egypt, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I will help you. It says again in 35, Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the redemption of God. He will come and save you. <coughs> so what we see from the Old Testament background of Peter's teaching in 1 Peter is that reverencing the Lord Christ in our hearts means, first of all, feeling that to displease Christ is more fearful than the threats of men. More specifically, since what displeases Christ most is unbelief, 
Therefore, reverencing him means setting our minds on his promises and trusting in them with all our heart. See, it's become clearer to me than ever, really, that the reason that we aren't more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and our associates about the reality of our hope in Christ is that we don't feel very hopeful. We don't feel very hopeful. And if our hearts are not full of hope and the promises of Christ, then, then here's what happens when an occasion arrives for us to make a case for our hope. Right? You have the opportunity to make a case for the hope that's inside you. And we sense it as a duty instead to defend doctrine. Instead of a delight to tell somebody why we are so hopeful. We sense it as a duty to defend doctrine instead of a delight to tell somebody why we are so hopeful. Witnessing will always be a burdensome duty and activity to defend a doctrine as long as Christianity means for us simply accepting certain doctrines as true and keeping a certain list of do's and don'ts. This is the challenge that I had this week as I was driving to his home. What did I do? I turned to the books that I have on, on suffering. What did I do? I turned to scriptures that I have concerning suffering and the one that I have been dwelling in, this passage, for the past couple months. And so I put scripture in my mind and I was prepared to try to pray with him and I went up to the door saying, God, I don't know what I'm doing. And I knocked on it. No answer. I rang the doorbell, no answer. All the cars there, no answer. So I walked away. I didn't have the chance to do that in that moment, which is, I believe, God's sovereignty because I didn't know what to say. I don't think I would have been able to pray. I wanted to try to make suffering okay for him. I wanted to try to make suffering not as bad. I wanted to defend the doctrines that I know to be true, that suffering is just part of this life. I wanted to try to care for him. I didn't know exactly how to do it. I was going to try to be obedient, and as Luke says, to just trust that the words will come, and I believe God would have done that, but that wasn't the time. But I know in my heart I was fighting this battle of, of brother, I, I'm suffering in, in a way that it doesn't compare, but I trust God. I know his purposes for me and for my family, for our life. I know that. I also know that you can't reconcile these right now. And I want to fix that tension. I want to defend this doctrine. I want you to see doc- I want you to see Christ is glorious. Uh, this tension in my he- own head is happening in this time. And so many people in the church have inherited these motions of just church life of outward morality and piety. And there's no heartfelt reality of Christ. There's no joyful hope. We want to defend the doctrine. We want to defend the sermon. We want to defend what we understand of who God is. Because that's what we live in. We don't live in the hope of God. I knew there was that cognitive dissonance in my head, but I couldn't resolve it because I live here. I need to live here. I can always make a case for doctrine. That's what I'm supposed to do. 
to word off false teachers, to teach you guys correctly. I, I can do that all day. But we have to be able to make a case for the hope that's in us. Because they don't feel any hope. When people are suffering, they don't feel hope brimming up from within their hearts. And so what this means then, just as the text says, is that the way to get ready to make a case for your hope is to get hopeful. That's what's so exciting, is it just simplifies matters. Don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody. Apply yourself to setting the questions of your own heart the right way and settle them. We have to find for ourselves a reason enough to get over our fear of men and have a lively hope. If our own hope does not spring up from something Christ did and said, then it's a mere sham to try to just make a case for anyone else to hope in Christ. If I show up and I try to give them all this stuff, and I say, you need to have that hope, but I'm living here, I can't do that. How am I supposed to call people to hope if I am not offering them that very hope? I love doctrine. I do. I told you that weeks ago. It's what I settle most of my life on, but it cannot be my life. Doctrine is a representation and understanding of the hope that I have. And that hope that I have has to be my life. That is the wellspring of my heart. If we search out the promises of Christ and we meditate on his character and his work for the sake of banishing our own fear and kindling our own hope, then this very act of reverencing Christ, not just knowing about him, reverencing Reverencing Christ for ourselves will be the best preparation for making a case for our hope to others. To me, that is an exciting and liberating discovery. So he came back over the two days later because in God's providence, I left the van door open overnight and a cat made his way into my van while it was raining and left cat smell. Um, which is a marker to me now of God's grace and bringing him back over to our house. Um, so I, I will take it with some Febreze. And he came up and, and Jess answered the door and all I could say was, Tom, brother, I'm sorry. And we hugged and that's all I had to say. No platitudes. I gave real ways that I could care for him, making a meal offering a room for out-of-town guests that's right next door. He was talking about the sleepless nights he had. I said, come talk to me. I'm right next door. I, I didn't launch into my defense. I did what I could. And so, if it's that way, then our primary activity in preparing to witness is to just keep our own hearts happy in God, as Piper would say, right? Keep our own hearts happy in God. Morning by morning, we have to go to the Word, not to anxiously amass arguments. All right? I, I'm all for apologetics, and certainly there's an enormous place for it in our culture. Thank God for Russell Moore. Got that. That's not our daily activity. Our daily activity is being happy in God. We go to the Word because we are so desperately needy. Our own hope wanes every day. We have fears that need to be overcome by the promises of God. We have doubts that need to be answered. 
The fight of faith is waged on our knees with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God and prayer. And when we emerge from that encounter with God, with a renewed and lively hope in His promises, then we will be ready to make a case for our hope. For God only calls us to tell others the reasons which that very day are making us hopeful in Christ. That's how we persevere together. Fight for hope. Look through the suffering to the hope of the last day. And see that in each other. As you see people who are happy in God, notice the good and celebrate it and enjoy one another. I am dead tired on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I get it. I, I understand. Some of you guys get up earlier than me. Celebrate the good. Come there looking for the good in people. That's why I do it. I love hearing the things that God's doing in you guys. I love the things that he's showing you, that he's teaching you, that he's stretching you in. You don't have to be afraid of them. The cross outed you as a sinner. Don't be afraid of that stuff. When we hide those things, we are hiding evidences of the grace of God actively participating in our life. Put it on the table. Say, man, I'm not there yet, and I know some of you can help me see this better. But I'm struggling with this, but this is what God's shown me. How do I, how do I get to the end of the game? think less of you. <laughs> That's not what we do. We care for each other. And we look forward to the day when we finish the race together. And so I want to turn you back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed when in the last time and in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation when of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. At the end of chapter 4, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Not period. Not just trust. Not just let go, let God. While doing good. Be about the business. End of chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his, to his, to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Guys, this is our hope. And it's a good, good news. It is the gospel. 
the good news of grace. I'm going to ask Matt to come forward and pray for us together. As we look forward to the changes that are coming to, to us, to, the, to the, our church, to our, our body, uh, we pray that, that you would be about the business of doing good and walking together.